Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. It is Tuesday, December 6th, and, uh, you know, getting into the week. I feel like I go back and forth if Monday or Tuesday is my least favorite day of the week. I feel like Monday, Tuesday, at least you feel like you're moving somewhere. Monday, yeah, I don't know. But anyways, a lot to talk about, so we're going to skip all the usual stuff. I want to start with the kind of promising report, of, though, of course, they have to find a way to <laughs> make it less happy, I guess, if, if you want to put it that way. But basically, it's involving COVID, immunity, and kind of the state of the world right now. And there's a good economist headline from, I want to say it was on Sunday. The World Health Organization said that 90% of the world now has some resistance to COVID. And of course, though, they had to warn that a new variant causing significant mortality could still emerge. Now, I don't want to jinx us, so let's uh, knock on wood here before we keep going. But as of now, the variants haven't got more deadly. They've just gotten more transmissible. That's why over the holidays last year, everyone was getting Omicron, right? So that is good news that between vaccination and getting COVID, a lot of people have some sort of resistance. Now, the one thing I will add, and again, I'm not a big health expert here, is that just because you had COVID or are vaccinated, we are learning that immunity and resistance wanes very quickly. That's why some people have had five or six boosters. At the, I think only five for, let's see, you had two, three, four. Yeah, I, I do know some people that have had five. So yeah, you know, it shows you that obviously resistance isn't strong. Like for tetanus or something, they recommend a booster every 10 years. Obviously, COVID's more frequent. So 90%, I don't really know how they completely got those numbers, but it's going to be interesting to see. And we need to keep vaccinating the global south, developing nations, etc. And on that note as well, China has started easing restrictions in some of its major cities in what they're calling, in quotes, a new stage in the fight against the virus. Now, a lot of college kids are mad. A lot of the Chinese population not exactly thrilled with everything that's happening here. So we'll have to see. But in the U.S., at least, we kind of have that trifecta of RSV or even more than a trifecta. But you have like RSV, the flu and covid and I saw that Biden was looking to extend emergency authorization, basically, to deal with all of these instead of just COVID. So that's going to be fun, right, with Christmas around the corner. So I'm excited to be traveling later in the week. But what do you do? So anyways, I want to later talk about, well, Trump's issues with the Constitution that he or truth socialed about a few days ago. I want to talk about free speech on the MAGA right and how they have a very flawed view of free speech. And then I want to talk about how nihilism has kind of influenced all of this. But first, I want to talk about the most expensive cities to live in the world and what they can kind of tell us. And we're switching it up a little bit today. I wanted to do kind of a little travel log across the, across the world and look at kind of different dynamics and economic indicators because they can kind of tell us which countries are doing better and which are not. So... I was reading a report in The Economist over the weekend, and I found it pretty interesting. It was just its basically data and graphic analysis of the most expensive and least expensive cities in the world for 2022. The Economist basically has a sister organization called the Economist Intelligence Unit, and they do data analytics and use a significant amount of different indicators to graph these trends and calculate these trends, and they've done it for decades now. 
and it provides some interesting insight into the different costs of cities throughout the world, ranging from Harachi in Pakistan to Buenos Aires to Hong Kong, you know, quite a range of places. And it also, I think it's interesting to see the changes from a decade ago to now. And I find this information useful because it can paint a really important picture of global dynamics and how different countries have fared with the pandemic, inflation, rising oil prices, whatever else it may be, maybe uh, civil war, social unrest, coup d'etat, whatever it may be. And also it's interesting because you can see if certain places have seen the cost of living go up dramatically, maybe wages haven't, so it can tell both travelers and political or economic experts not to go to these places or to go to these places or maybe they need help. All the above. And anyways, the Economist, or Economist Intelligent Unit, or the EIU, notes and quotes here, prices in big cities around the world have risen by an average of 8.1% in local currency over the past year. I think we all kind of know that's pretty clear. I mean, that's kind of been generally what inflation's been around the world, about 8%. If you recall, last week I mentioned that in November, uh, wage increased about 5%. So again, is that really that great if inflation's up 8%? I would say no, but that's a whole other conversation. But the article also notes some interesting insights about energy costs throughout European cities compared to the rest of the world. For example, energy, uh, energy prices have uh, rocketed by 29% in Western Europe, but only 11% globally since last year. And I've talked about this before. Like As bad as gas and oil prices are in the United States, they're much worse in Europe, almost three times as bad. And obviously this has been exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? And I do know this is true, especially in places like Spain, because when I was there oh, several months ago now, my taxi driver that I was with to see the Spanish family there was noting that, you know, the Spanish government hadn't done any rounds of stimulus, you know, in the early days of COVID. There was nothing... Basically, the Spanish government had really done to help people. Then you had COVID. Then you had supply chain issues. Then you had the Russian invasion. Then you had all these energy cost raises. And he just talked about how energy costs were already high and only getting worse. He discussed how he and his friends had pressing worries about not being able to afford the energy bill if things got worse. And I think that's something that we're not as accustomed to in the United States. Like, energy costs have gone up here, but... We seem to have cheaper energy, generally speaking. Obviously, cheaper is relative, but comparatively to places like Spain and France and Germany, yes, we do. And, you know, I, I think the difference is, like, even, like, upper middle class families in Spain are saying, like, turn off the lights everywhere. Make sure all the lights are off no matter what. Don't leave anything plugged in. There's a conscious effort to really reduce electricity costs while you don't really hear Americans having the same stresses. And, you know, I mean, I, I notice with my energy bill, I still pay about 15 bucks a month. And I don't keep lights on when I'm gone or when I'm sleeping and stuff, but I'm not just hyper fixated on having everything off all the time. And I think that just shows you how much worse off Europe is. So anyways, my rants about Spain aside, this Economist EIU poll article does note some troubling trends, which might not surprise all of you. It discusses in quotes here, overall the survey, which compares the prices of more than 200 products and services in over 107 cities, 170 cities, sorry, I can't read, 
finds the cost of living is rising at its fastest rate for at least 20 years. So yeah, the cost of living is more expensive than it's been in several decades. Probably not surprising to anyone. And it then goes on to discuss how the most expensive cities haven't really changed too much, even though I, I looked at some of these numbers from 10 years ago, because you could they have a graphic where you can kind of compare from then and now. And some places have changed, but Singapore has continued to be the most expensive city year after year. I think it was like 2014 to 2019, and then this year again. But I think the most interesting one is that many American cities, including New York and LA, have caught up with Singapore. And to be completely frank, that isn't good <laughs> for one reason, is because Singapore has public services. New York has, yeah, okay, it has. it's better than LA, but... The cost of living in L.A. is pretty insane, and also it's way more stressful just because of the idea that you also have to commute in your car sometimes freaking hours a day. So, like, I mean, at least in Singapore, I've heard it's really clean, quite nice. I mean, you can't chew gum, and there's a death penalty for drugs, but other than that, like, yeah, I've heard Singapore is quite nice, and they do take care of you. So, yeah, I can understand why that city would be expensive, but, like, L.A. is kind of a s-hole, if you know what I mean, and so... For the cost of living to be as high there is kind of troubling, as well as in New York as well. So that's the big takeaway from this is that New York and L.A. have caught up to Singapore, and they used to be kind of in the middle of cities around the country. And actually, New York is the survey's benchmark city, which is kind of new because New York to me isn't really the benchmark for much. But anyways, um, prices, New York City that is, New York's a beautiful state, but it's just interesting that it's up there. But anyways, prices have gone up across America. And actually, six of the top 10 biggest movers on this ranking list are there as well. And this does include Atlanta and Boston as well. By the way, my mom, I guess, spent a great 4 a.m. arrival in the Atlanta airport a few weeks ago. So good old airline fun. But that's another side note. But the article also discusses in quotes here how, in quotes, the two biggest climbers are in Russia. And I think this makes sense. It notes St. Petersburg has risen 70 places to 73rd since 2021, so still not awful. And Moscow has shot up 88 places to 37th. So yeah, Moscow's going up there. Moscow used to be pretty middle of the road, but you could understand why it's expensive. I think we all understand that sanctions, the chaos there, yeah. And when you read numbers like that, you kind of wonder how long it's going to take until something breaks in Russia between the government and the populace or something, just because the cost of living is getting more and, I don't know, people are sort of struggling, at least from the people I've talked to and what I've read. But other high-end or, I guess, highly expensive cities would be a better way to put it, were, like I said, Los Angeles, Hong Kong, Tel Aviv, Zurich. Zurich makes sense for sure. Zurich's a beautiful city and... Again, a lot like Singapore, but different. Yes, it's expensive, but the quality of life is amazing. I don't know much about Tel Aviv or Hong Kong, but I know the Chinese government's always trying to crack down on Hong Kong. But I thought it was, like I said, interesting because you could compare the cost of living from these places to 10 years ago. And Los Angeles has just gone crazy in the last decade because it was basically closer to Rome than Zurich 10 years ago. It was kind of in the median and now it's in the higher quartile. And that shows you, I think, how in the U.S. the cost of everything is going up. And you kind of have to shake your head and go, why? I mean, we're not really getting anything more for this, right? And also, <laughs> speaking of Los Angeles, too, is like looking at this. 
Ten years ago, Caracas had a higher cost of living than Los Angeles. Now Caracas is, I would say, in the bottom quartile for obvious reasons. And that's interesting. It's kind of interesting to see some of these shifts. You know what I mean? And then looking at the other side of it, and again, I'm just, I'm just kind of skimming through this because there's like, like I said, 170 cities to look through here. But some of the least expensive cities were interesting to check out. Let's see, what did we have here? Lost my spot. You had Damascus. It was the lowest one they counted. Damascus, Syria. And this one's actually kind of sad because Damascus used to be a very beautiful city with a lot of history. It actually, 10 years ago, was comparable to Riyadh and Dubai. So kind of, I would say, middle of the road, even kind of top like 60, 60, 55 most expensive places to live. And now it's one of the cheapest. And unfortunately, that does make sense based on how awful the civil war has been in Syria, Assad's mass killings, the Russian bombings. Damascus and most of Syria, the cost of living is cheap, but you also have to think like the cost of life there and just the cost of trying to stay alive. There's other costs there that are difficult, right? And you pay a heavy toll for. So that one was kind of the biggest shock to me. I should note, Harachi, Pakistan has always kind of been in the bottom one. Not much has really changed there in a decade. It was one of the places I see the least notable changes. Also, Istanbul was also kind of interesting because it's not in the bottom half, even though 10 years ago it was also on par with places like Los Angeles and Rome. But we do have to remember that like the Turkish currencies have not done well. Inflation is even higher than it is in most places. And Recep Erdogan has not been a particularly good leader. So I just found this stuff kind of interesting. I, I enjoy looking at these kind of analyses of cities and looking at just changes that have happened. And, you know, there's some places that have seemed kind of steadily consistent, like Rome hasn't really moved much. Riyadh hasn't really moved much. Dubai has moved a little bit. But then you look at these American places where the costs have just skyrocketed. And then you look at some of these war-torn places where they've completely dropped. And it's sort of fascinating to me. And I think there's some questions that need to be asked if you're an American to go, why is Los Angeles more expensive now than ever? Because of course, like people love California and people want to live by the beach and yada, yada, yada. But are you getting more for that cost of living? And I guess if you're a young professional, you probably wouldn't want to live in one of these places either. But I think, I think probably the biggest takeaway from this is how much things change over 10 years, especially in places like Syria, where it seems like there was a pretty stable middle class, especially prior to the Syrian civil war that I think what started about 2012, maybe a little bit earlier. And it just is always fascinating for me to see how quickly things can change based on either internal dynamics or global dynamics. And I know that sounds so simple on paper, but I encourage people to check out that graph. It's on the Economist website, or if you type in Economist Intelligence Unit and just look it up, it shows the difference between the indexes, you know, from this year, 10 years ago. I think there's one for last year as well. Quite fascinating. So anyways, moving on. I want to talk about... <laughs> I want to talk about the MAGA right, and it's somewhat hypocritical and problematic views involving free speech, the Constitution, American democracy, and kind of how it seems like they have their blinders on 
I feel like prior prior to the Trump era, maybe actually it would be better to say prior to the Sarah Palin era, there seemed to be some understanding that Republicans and Democrats both viewed the same motives for the country or the same goals, or at least we thought we'd get there the same way. I don't know. There seemed to be some understanding of like, this is a country where we value free speech, diversity of ideas, religious plurality, etc. And it seems like there's a nihilism that is definitely a both sides thing, but it's not as prevalent on the left. And I think the nihilism along with Trumpism, along with like Christian nationalism and everything have kind of creeped into the Republican Party. And I guess I guess I was driven to talk about this because I saw our great buddy, Donnie Trump, called for the termination of the Constitution to overturn the 2020 election and reinstate him to power. And this happened actually last Saturday. I wanted to talk about this earlier, but there are just so many things I wanted to cover for Monday's episode that it just felt better to put this out today. But anyways, please bear with me. I'm going to read his interesting Truth Social post from Saturday. Pretty wild. This all came after some... To me, they weren't revelations, but to some people, they were they were revelations about the dialogue that happened on Twitter prior to banning the New York Post story about Hunter Biden before the 2020 election. I don't think it changed things, but I could be wrong. Anyways, the Truth Social Post reads, Do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Then he accused big tech of working closely with Democrats. And then he said, our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. Look, I don't think like Trump's going to turn us into like a fascist republic or a fascist theocracy overnight or anything like that, but... There is something somewhat dangerous about that line. Let's go back to it. A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Let that sink in for a moment. Because of a now disproven lie about the election, he's now basically saying that everything can be thrown out the door, even the Constitution, to basically protect him. And there's some significant and very unique and kind of impressive, to be honest, narcissism to that statement. But we have to understand that what he's talking about is the Hunter Biden laptop and how Twitter, you know, blocked information from the New York store, the New York Post story about it. And of course it was stupid, and I think they shouldn't have done it. But let's be honest, like, I don't know if this would have swayed things too much. Trump handled COVID horribly. He was telling people to ingest bleach. Like, he was turning off voters left and right. He told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. He was, you know, there's reports from Mark Esper and others and General Milley about during the Black Lives Matter protests, he wanted to do martial law and sending people to beat him up. Like, this was an unhinged guy, and I think a lot of people saw through it in 2020 because COVID kind of took the mask off of everything, put the mask on us, but took the mask off of reality a little bit. And look, like, you have a guy now saying, because of his narcissistic theories about the election, that he thinks everything should be thrown out the door, including the Constitution. And that is troubling to me on so many levels, because he's also saying the founders didn't want this and blah, blah, blah. And you hear this type of rhetoric from others, including like the Tucker Carlson's and the Mastrianos and 
the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts or Bobears, sorry, who talk about how this is a Christian nation and we need to bring it back, or talk about how the founders would be discouraged. There's a growing separation of kind of viewing what this country stands for, and I think that's why, like, there are probably people that would look at that truth social truth, not tweet, and go, yeah, Trump's right. Like, maybe it's time to do something different. And, of course, we don't know any of that yet, but, yeah, because it was not some big, con you know, controversial conspiracy to cover up the Hunter Biden laptop. From what these Matt Taibbi tweets that he put out after getting information last Friday basically show is that it was not a big conspiracy. Instead, it looked like Twitter employees were incompetent and were debating over whether to, resp whether to restrict the article. And it was under the company's hacked materials policies. And it was, I think it was careless. They should have let it go. But of course, things get complicated. And I guess I get it. I don't know. I, I'm still kind of torn on that. But again, Trump's statement about basically terminating the Constitution along with his election denialism, support for the Capitol rioters. I could go on all day meeting with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, I, I, I honestly could just probably do a whole episode listing things off. But basically, all these things show that this guy does not value the same institutions that other people do. And I guess going further, I can't stop but think about all the projection and just blatant lies that have come from the right lately. And not all the right. Like, there are some bulwarks in there. And not the Bulwark podcast or network, but there are people like Mitt Romney who clearly have a moral high ground, which is rare. But even, like, even let's flash back to 10 years ago. Like, the party of law and order now saying we're going to prosecute private companies for not allowing Twitter to be on their app store or blah, blah, blah. I mean, even earlier iterations of the Freedom, excuse me, the Freedom Caucus, like the Tea Party. The Tea Party was nuts. They were cocoa for coke or cuckoo for cocoa puffs or whatever people say. And at least the Tea Party did echo small government principles, as flawed as their logic was. But now it seems like this new Freedom Caucus and the MAGA Nazis, not all of them, I, I should probably step back, not all MAGA Nazis, but you know what I mean. It's like, it's completely isolated from Republican values and it's becoming this kind of autocratic nationalism. Um, and I think Trump's comments basically show a mixture of nihilism that has infected the party, mixed with the liberalism, mixed with Christian nationalism, and a flawed view of what our founding fathers actually wanted to create. And I'll never forget, Ben Shapiro had a podcast several years ago now that was about how, oh, the founding fathers don't want actually secularism, it's a Christian nation. He had a guy on who was a legal scholar, of evangelical legal, eagle, or legal scholar, who is basically just like, yeah, actually... It's a lie that the Founding Fathers wanted a separation of church and state. And even from that, they're kind of starting to say that quiet part out aloud. But anyways, a nihilist as well, I think that's the big issue because back on, maybe it was like the second episode of this podcast, I argued that nihilism had taken over a lot of the electorate and politicians. And this nothing matters kind of nihilistic mindset, I think, made it okay and easier to embrace Trump's worst impulses and Trump's own nihilism. And I think it opened the doors for practically anything because a nihilist to me is usually valueless. And I think that is a current issue that is metastasized, right? This is where Trump, I think, was a catalyst. Trump doesn't seem to care about the U.S. system. He even seemed to express kind of a disdain for the law, human rights, and the idea of leading by example. 
which is ironic because I think a lot of his base used to care about that, but they've kind of just pushed it off. Maybe that's nihilism as well. I don't know. But I'll never forget when he mentioned to Bill O'Reilly several, I mean, almost a decade ago now, at the way things are moving, he mentioned to Bill O'Reilly that the U.S. was no better than Russia. And he's like, oh, you think we're so much better or whatever to that effect? And he was comparing us to Russia even before the invasion, and he must have known that we're better than Putin. Obviously, the U.S. isn't perfect overseas. We've done some atrocious shit over there. But the problem with Trump, though, is that what Trump did was he mixed his own nihilism about democracy at a time when the American people's nihilism towards our system not working to help them was also growing. And so he was kind of the perfect cocktail waitress for a systematic disdain that led to this unique form of populism that, since I did that episode over a year ago now, has gone from, like, right-wing populism to kind of an ethno-nationalism. And I think that becomes more and more clear when you see the comment section on the Kanye news and you see people going, like, there's a lot of likes, there's not a lot of dislikes, and a lot of, like, the hate emoji or whatever. Like, a lot of people like what Kanye is saying. And I think it's... I don't don't think anti-Semitism is growing, but I think just our nihilism for reality is growing. And I think all of this has led to a MAGA view of free speech, American liberty, whatever it is that is disconnected from how things actually work. It also reminds me of the Claremont Institute, which was, I think, one of the first ones to really get on board with MAGA. And this form of kind of like the Claremont Institute are always who I kind of associate with stomping all over democracy to get what you want. As long as, because basically once you do that, you can kind of redefine democracy to however you want. And I think this organization really shifted when in 2016, Michael Anton, who he writes for the Claremont Institute, but I don't know exactly what he does, sorry. He put out quite an alarming article called the Flight 93 election. Again, like I said, this is back in 2016. And he basically wrote the election of 2016 will test whether virtue remains in the core of the American nation. He put it out under the pseudonym Publius Dishus Mus, and he basically compares the 2016 election to that flight during 9-11 where the passengers stormed the cockpit and stopped the flight from heading to D.C. to kill numerous more people. They decided it was worth taking the plane down in the field instead of crashing into a building and killing way more people. Really nice, right? And... Anton wrote in quotes here, 2016, and he's speaking about the election, is the Flight 93 election. Charge the cockpit or you die. You may die anyways. You or the leader of your party may make it into the cockpit and not know how to fly or land the plane. There are no guarantees, except one. If you don't try, death is certain. To compound the metaphor, a Hillary Clinton presidency is Russian roulette with a semi-automatic weapon. With Trump, at least you can spin the cylinder and take your chances. And I remember, <laughs> I remember back when I was in Chapman Republican, still briefly, I remember, uh, I remember people were talking about that and going, yeah, Trump's a good bulwark against the insanity. And I'm going, you're letting a guy who's like had three wives, cheated on two of them, completely like bulldozed friends and family, has no moral values, and clearly like doesn't like racial minorities, but isn't loud enough about it. I'm like, you want to gamble with this guy who's clearly a narcissist and has not a single friend in his life? I'm like, I would actually rather go down with the plane than take the cockpit and give Trump the pilot's license. 
that 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 is i would rather just the country crashes and burns than goes down that that's my my personal opinion and so when when this guy writes the article and says it's either hillary or trump and trump's worth the gamble i think all of us have learned since 2016 that as flawed as hillary could have been here we are now, the former president's meeting with a neo-Nazi and an anti-Semite in the Mar-a-Lago residence. Anyways, um, this <laughs> that I already talked about gets me then to something else. Add nihilism to how the, the right sees free speech as a high-stakes risk and a zero-sum game. This is how you now have people like Jim Jordan saying they, and, and he did say this, he wanted, he, he's also a free speech guy, by the way. He also wanted to punish the Apple store for taking ads off of Twitter. <laughs> yes, um, that's very free market of him. Twitter, by the way, is a private company, which can do what it wants, last time I checked. You also have Ron DeSantis, who is kind of becoming somewhat of an economic autocrat against Disney because of their grooming or woke bullshit, whatever you want to call it. And it just seems like with Trump apparently flying this plane, if we want to go back to that metaphor, when your party is devoid of coordinates and the airport you're landing at, maybe you're just directionally flying until you run out of fuel. And this finally takes me to a new article in The Atlantic by David French that I think is really good. It's called Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson Don't Understand the First Amendment. And it goes off of what I've kind of said about Jim Jordan, but it more focuses on the fact that Twitter is a private company, company sorry, and not the government. Before I get into it, I must just add that this really is a new phenomenon that I do think both sides are guilty of. Like both, both are definitely trying to use government authority to... I don't want to say control, but to to stifle what private enterprise is doing. But I guess the Democrats have never like played coy about it as much as the Republicans. Worse on the right. But basically the right is starting to believe that private companies must be forced to act like public or governmental ones. And there's a view that it must be forced to uphold the First Amendment, which is actually more focused on the government, not private organizations. We have to remember that. And anyways, the article basically talks about some recent events that made the right talking a lot and the rest of us kind of going, is this really that big? And this is that Matt Taibbi article that he put out last Friday night. He's an independent journalist who I actually agree with more than people would think. And he wrote a lengthy Twitter thread he called the Twitter files. And French writes to kind of sum it up better than I probably can. Taibbi documents, sorry, Taibbi's documents provided further evidence demonstrating what Twitter's critics have long argued, that the decision to suppress the information was both incoherent and inconsistent. And what he's talking about is that Hunter Biden stuff. French then discusses how while these documents showed that Twitter employees seemed confused and chaotic in their decision making, there was no real cause for panic, right? Like, I think, I think people on the right think this was a cover-up. I think most of us just think Twitter is like everything flawed and maybe biased as well, but it's not like this big existential crisis that Trump seems to believe it is. And French also agrees with an election analyst, Jeffrey Blehar, Blehar, sorry, who wrote in the National Review, which is, by the way, not a very left-leaning publication. I mean, it's fairly right. And 
but sensible right. I guess that's the distinction. And the National Review wrote that the thread contained few, if any, explosive revelations. And I think that's absolutely. And it writes, for those who followed the story closely, there was not much to learn from it other than incompetence and inconsistent decision-making. And, of course, French discusses, though, people like Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson have very different opinions. Musk wrote, after all this was revealed, if this isn't a violation of the Constitution's First Amendment, what is? Tucker Tucker Carlson, on his show, also said the documents, in quotes, show a systemic violation of the First Amendment, the the largest example of that in modern history. And now, look, just to be fair, just to be devil's advocate... While Twitter's a private company, this was a public election, and a decision by a public, or sorry, a private company that is kind of like the town square for people throwing mud at each other, was blocking information that that influenced a public election, so it does get complicated. I'm not saying I agree with Tucker or Elon here, but what I am saying is that it's maybe not as black and white as like Twitter's a private company, because a private company's decision to suppress information did potentially impact a public event. And now, I don't actually think it did impact it, but the fact that maybe it could have or it could have at least been somewhat involved, I think is enough to say, like, maybe we need a better line on on how companies react to information related to a candidate, I guess. And I think both Tucker and Elon reacted interesting to Taibbi's posts, because they show this breakdown between what these Musk, Carlson, Trumpist types, and then people like myself on the center think of free speech. Because French reminds us in quotes here, the First Amendment regulates government conduct. It does not regulate private actors. The text of the amendment itself says that, in quotes, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The restraint on Congress has since been extended to apply to the U.S. government at all levels, local, state, and federal. So we have Congress and governmental entities from the state to the federal level and and local. And look, call me crazy, but because Twitter is not the government, the First First Amendment actually protects Twitter from the same scrutiny that government entities get here. And this means that Twitter can do whatever the hell it wants, in my opinion. Now, I do think that these platforms are huge, and like I said... It's basically like a metaphorical mudslinging in public square, and I think it's way way complicated, especially when it's related to a presidential election. And I understand some of the ridicule about taking this New York Post story off right before an election. But we have to remember that these type of things seem to happen a lot, and I also don't know, like I said at the top of the show, that this would have impacted it as much as people do. I think it should also be added that Twitter didn't completely censor the story because one could argue that this controversy actually shed more light on the story and actually backfired and gave the story more attention. So either way, the idea that it is, I guess my worry is that this idea that is new on the right is that new social media companies are meant to be regulated like government entities and must follow the same First Amendment rights as government entities. And It's interesting, but it shows a troubling divide over how we view our Constitution. And I think this is why Trump now seems okay with getting rid of it, based on those truth social posts I was talking about. Of course, he was probably being hyperbolic. He wouldn't actually do that, I hope, but who knows? And I guess the big question is, and it's something eventually I think as society we're going to have to address because it's going to be a burning question, is why does the right seem to think that Elon Musk is a savior now? that he bought Twitter and has been kind of a troll. 
And why does the left think he is vandalizing our society and bringing it down? That's a huge schism. And I remember on the old podcast, we talked about historical schisms. And obviously, I don't want to be hyperbolic and say this is a huge schism. But when you have two sides that completely are divided on this type of issues and free speech and elections and stuff, these schisms are hard to fix. And I think the whole Twitter debate right now, in a sense, is fairly encompassing of all of our divisions, if you wanted to put it into a nice Christmas present. And before we're out of here, though, maybe I'll just end on a positive note, is that while I'll say we're having some sort of schism, at least in our views of free speech and democracy, and I think MAGA's nihilism has not helped it, I think our democracy is not at threat. Like, uh, what's her name? Rachel Maddow has that ultra thing, and it it really tries to link this movement to a lot of extremism that I've also tried to link it to, but I wouldn't go as far as saying, like, we're going down a fascist road yet. And I used to be worried about that more, but I think um, it does seem like our democracy is holding up. A judge turned down Trump's special master just, I think, two, like three days ago involving that Mar-a-Lago search. And that county in Georgia or in Arizona I talked about like last week was forced to certify the election. Also, the Republicans barely won the House after huge red wave projections. And the Democrats really did much better in the midterms, and we turned down crazy candidates left and right. So I don't know if our democracy is crumbling like some people think, but I do think like these divisive issues is a problem. So anyways, have a great rest of your day. We shall talk soon, and peace. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I miss some, but whatever. Take care.